0: Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Russell. I'm one of the pastors here. If it's your first time with us, we are a new community of faith that believes no matter where you are, there's room at the table. Um, Anyone part of the 12 Hours of Prayer this week? Anyone, yes. How was the first week? Good, okay, I'm gonna take that as good right there. Um, my prayer has been throughout this, throughout this process, um, that we don't see prayer as a zero-sum game. I think that's very easy for us, especially if we haven't done it in a while. We, we approach God and we sort of have a ledger of things that we're asking for and where he's coming through and sort of a zero-sum game. But what my request has been for God is as we carve space in our, in our days, as we make ourselves available um, for God's presence to shape us, we recognize that whether he answers, quote, unquote, or does not answer our prayers, we still see his hand in the process and therefore becomes something a lot bigger and a lot deeper than just a zero-sum game. Um, If you want to join, still join. I really believe that God has been doing something and is doing something uh, in our community, stirring in our hearts. He's already been teaching me this. So we, I've been praying a lot of Ev- Ephesians 3 over us. In Ephesians 3, you may have heard me say it before. It's the verse that says, to the God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And he's already shown that to me in a small way. I prayed that all of our slots in our 12 hours of prayer would be filled, all of them. It ended up being that we have 66 people praying in one of the slots, and we have nine extra people, who are also praying. So not only did he fill the slots, which was my prayer, but we have over an abundance of people who are praying, which is already God's little way of saying, ask bold things. Watch, is the arm of the Lord too short? One of the things that we're praying for and midst to a lot of different things is, because summer's coming to an end, da-da-da-da-da-da. Can I get a drum roll, please? Fall kickoff, woo! Oh, come on, fall kickoff. Yeah! Yeah, it's going to be in three weeks, September 9th, it's going to be a blast, we're going to have carnival games, we're going to have a root beer keg, Um, we're going to have a potluck starting a new sermon series, and probably uh, the most important thing is we're going to be launching tables on that day, launching tables. Our table leaders are being trained, we're going to have around 16, they're going to be launching around Brooklyn and Manhattan, sorry Queens and Staten Island and the Bronx, none there yet. but you're gonna to wanna to be here for this. You're gonna want to, it's gonna sort of launch us into the next season, the next chapter. So Brooklyn, bring a friend to this. Bring a friend who, um, who you wanna challenge and be like, hey, what would it look like to this year to ask tough questions? I feel like, and we're gonna talk about this today, I feel like our culture in this moment where we're really confused about things. Where um, things that we have placed our hope in are breaking before our eyes. And that can be very scary, but as the church, that is incredibly liberating because that means that we can walk beside people and say, actually, we have a hope that doesn't disappoint. And so far for the last thousands of years, hasn't disappointed. Come through every time. Come through in different ways than we expect, different forms, but comes through. So maybe this is the season where God wants to um, press upon us and press upon our friends to start asking questions, deep questions. Deep questions. And one of the places where we want to do that is in our table. So bring a friend to the fall kickoff. It's going to be a blast. All right. Pray with me, and then we'll jump into today's message. Lord, we silence our hearts. We thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you're not a zero-sum God. When we're distant from you, we approach you in that way. Because we're not sure if we can trust you. But when we examine this story, we recognize that you are the God who has been present in history from the dawn of time. And you are seen. You are revealed. But it might not come the way we think it should come. Especially for us in the West. We have a lot of things that cloud our eyes from seeing you because As you say time and time again, the proud cannot see you. Only the broken spirit may approach. If if there's anything that seems to be happening in this cultural moment, Lord, you are breaking us. You're breaking us. And so for that, we rejoice because we know even though it's painful when there is breaking That is the conditions by which we can see you, the living God, the God of miracles. And so we press into that as a community. We press into that as individuals. We press into that as a family. And we say that it's not gonna come. Nothing's gonna come. The kingdom's not gonna come through our efforts alone. The kingdom will only come through repentance and through you, Jesus. You manifesting your love for your people and your world. So we're broken vessels and we're available. Speak to us today, it's in your name, amen. All right, so we're coming to the end of our summer series which we have titled Storytime with Jesus. Um, We've been looking at various parables and sort of asking the question of why parables and what is Jesus trying to teach us about the kingdom in these parables. Brief recap, parables. Parables are teaching tools, parables are stories that Jesus utilizes, which talks about very common concepts, very common concepts, but he flips them on their head. He employs them in very unconventional ways, such that the listeners, when they hear it, they're left wondering, okay, how do I put this into practice? If the kingdom is like this, what does that mean? How do I respond? So today we're going to be in Luke 14, Luke 14, Uh, if you have your Bibles or smartphones, We're going to be reading verses 15 through 24. And just FYI, and obviously this will come out in the message, but we are uh, picking up in the middle of a particular dinner party, okay? So we're in the, it's like being thrust right into the middle of a dinner party. And this is what's going on. When one of those at the table with him, him meaning Jesus, heard this. He heard something Jesus said. Don't worry, we'll come back to it. He said to Jesus... Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. Now at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Shout out to the married people in the room. (laughs) The servant, I don't even know what that means. (laughs) The servant came back and reported this to his master. And then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. And then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in, so that my house will be full. For I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get to taste my banquet. All right. Context. Jesus is at a dinner party, (laughs) And the best way that you can sum up Jesus at dinner parties is you don't know what's about to happen, other than it's going to get real. Hashtag Jesus at a dinner party, it's going to get real. It, it sort of reminds me of um, a beach trip that my family takes. Uh, I have two brothers um, and a, a dad and a mom, and um, and whenever we get together, just I don't know, Anna says she never sees me laugh like I laugh with my brothers. We just, like, our passion sort of feeds on one another, and we have such energy, and we're like little puppies nipping at each other's ears. It's crazy. But the joke in our family is that at some point during the week, my dad and I, who we love, respect dearly, but we have different views on certain things, we'll be sitting at the table. At some point, we don't know when it's going to happen. It's going it's to come when we least expect it. But someone's going to say something, probably him. That's okay. You can't deny it right now, Dad. He'll say something, and I'll think to myself, just stay quiet. You don't need to respond. It's okay. Don't worry about it. But then I'll look at my older brother, Matthew, and Matthew will have this biggest grin on his face, like, go ahead. Go ahead and say it. And then I'll say something, and then three hours later, everyone will have excused themselves and my dad and I are still talking about this. That is Jesus at a dinner party, only he wins the argument every time. You don't know what's going to happen, but something is going to happen. At some point, Jesus is going to go in. It's going to get real. Um, In order to understand precisely what's going on in this story, we need a little historical context. There are two things, and, and honestly, it won't be that different because dinner parties in the first century are really like dinner parties in the 21st, as we'll see in a second. But there are two elements of dinner parties in the first century that are important for our purposes today. First, Social status in the ancient world was based on one social estimation of honor. That's a very fancy way of saying your status was based on your popularity, right? One's status in the ancient world was based on what other people thought of you. And what is status? Status is nothing more than the power of collective suggestion, based on collectively agreed upon values. But you may be wondering, what are these values? When did we vote on these values? We never did. We just woke up into them. We found ourselves in them. I might say, as we'll get into a little bit, maybe there's a power of evil that sort of agrees upon these values for us. However, that is status. The power of collective suggestion based on collectively agreed upon values. And we already see this playing out in this particular dinner party because in verse 7, which we didn't read, but it's earlier in the story, we're told when he, he meaning Jesus, when he noticed how the guest chose the places of honor. So he's at this dinner party and he's looking and, and people are choosing the places of honor, the seats of honor. The status of that society was manifested, was made concrete in seats of honor. And of course, for us, all we have to think about is high school, right? (laughs) You walk into a high school and you know exactly who the cool kids are. You know, your status in that school is manifested by what table you're sitting at. As Joel Green writes, meals were used to publicize and reinforce social hierarchy. So dinner parties were used to make public what is our collective status and to reinforce it, because it's all the same people at the same meals over and over and over. So it was vital that you got invited to the right parties, and that you also sat at the right seats. Or as we would say in the 21st century, it's not what you know, it's who you know. So too in the 1st century. So someone would take a more honorable seat in these parties, hoping to, to to receive the status associated with that seat, right? And and we do that too. How do we do that? We do that with Facebook events, or at least we used to. Maybe we still do. I don't know. When you get invited to a Facebook event, what do you do? You don't respond first. You want to see who else is responding, right? Yeah, you're laughing because you know it's true. Who else is responding? And then you wait, and if there's enough people, then maybe you'll you'll respond yes. Maybe uh, if there's not enough, you'll just say maybe. You'll keep your options open. But if the right person... You know what I'm talking about. If, that, if the star responds that they're going, then you're definitely going. Same thing. You're looking for the right parties that elevate you to the right status, to get the right seats at that table. So your status was based on your social estimation of honor, on your popularity. Jesus is at a party because Jesus just accepts invitations. He goes where he's invited. but he doesn't, He's never co-opted by the spaces he's invited into, but he does go there. And so he's watching this. He's watching it all happen. The second thing you need to know about dinner parties in the first century is the ethics of reciprocity. The ethics of reciprocity. Basically, nothing is free. (laughs) Nothing. Gifts, by unwritten definition, are never free, are always given and received with either explicit or implicit strings attached. So you're invited to the parties of those in your, your class, in your social status. And you never invited those below your class. And the reason why was just very very natural, very objective. One, it would endanger your status if you invited those below your class. But two, it was a wasted invitation because the poor would not accept that invitation. Why? Because they couldn't pay you back. Right? They would would feel like they're being tricked. This doesn't make any sense. They would never accept because they could not reciprocate such an invitation. So parties were all the same people every time, just like high school. It solidified the it crowd, right? It solidified the in crowd. So there was always this sense of if I invite you to something or if I do something for you, you do it back and this, this, you know, reciprocity such that no one can ever enter in. You know where I see that play out? In companies and groups and even sadly, and sometimes pastors meetings. You know where I see it play out? The in-group lobs compliments back and forth to each other. You know what I'm talking about? Where it's like you walk into a space and you immediately know who the in-group is because it's like this insider language, these insider jokes, and they're just talking this insider language back and forth, and everyone else is on the outside wondering what exactly is going on, and they're complimenting each other back and forth. So it solidifies this very tight idea of who the insiders are and who the outsiders are. The boundaries are thick and impenetrable, and everything is a game, most exhausting of all. (laughs) Dinner's never just dinner. I can't just eat in peace with people, everything. It's a game. Well, that's how this dinner party's happening. And then Frank goes and messes it up. I'm naming this guy Frank. I apologize if there are any Franks in the room. I have no problem with the name Frank. It just sounds like a Frank thing to do. (laughs) Frank is obviously at his first dinner party. He got invited, and he knows he shouldn't be there. And he's probably having a really good time because he's like, I made it, I'm in the it crowd, and he hears Jesus teaching and he goes, blessed is the one who eats at the feast of the kingdom, yeah! Assuming that this is the group, like we've made it, guys, we're having the time of our lives. He's very giddy right now, and it's at that point when he assumes that in Jesus' teaching he's been on their side, that Jesus gets confrontational. Up to that point he's been teaching, but now, He goes in. He's been sharp, but not directly confrontational. Now he sort of turns his focus to that immediate group. And he tells a story. In the story, he says there's a master of a house. And we know that this person has immense power. Immense power. We know it based on the words Jesus uses. He says he's throwing a great dinner. Not just a dinner, a great dinner. And he invited many He's constantly known as Lord or the master of the house. Moreover, you look at the excuses that the the, the people who decided not to come, that they throw at him, um, you can tell his social status. One guy says, I just bought a piece of land and I need to go inspect it. The other person says, I just bought five yoke of oxen. In the first century, if you have the means to be able to, to buy a piece of land before you inspect it, you have tremendous means, you're in the top 1%. Likewise, if you buy five yoke of oxen, scholars point out that's gonna work about 100 acres of land, where the common middle class Jewish person works six acres of land. So basically Jesus is trying to get to the point that this master of the house throwing the party, he's at the top rung of the ladder. He is very great, very powerful, and he's throwing a party. He invites those in his social status his class. But they decide to kick him out of the group. We have an instance of societal collusion. He sends his servant to say everything is ready and come. And one by one in verse 18 we're told, they all alike begin to make excuses. Now remember, your social status is determined on your popularity. It's determined on peer approval. And so the people in his group are basically, one by one, voting him off. They formed an alliance. That they reject his invitations, (laughs) excuse me, that they reject his invitations is basically their way of colluding together and saying, we're gonna publicly shame you because no one's gonna come to your party. It's either gonna be empty or you're gonna have to invite people below your social status. But we're going to publicly shame you. It is like Mean Girls where I guess Regina shows up and Gretchen goes, you can't sit with us anymore because you're wearing sweatpants on a Wednesday. and We don't wear sweatpants on Wednesdays. I don't remember if that was the reason. It's been a long time. But that's basically what's happening. They're all colluding together and saying, you're kicked out of the group. No more. You are being publicly embarrassed. It's worth noting, this isn't the point of the story, but it's worth noting for us in the West that those who are invited and chose not to come are those whose lives are deeply embedded in their possessions and their relationships. That is to say, they skip the feast because they bought land, they bought oxen, they're getting married. They have the luxury of time to move and to do and to be. They have stuff that they can do other than just existing. It's a detail that we in the West need, we would do well to remember how often we miss out on the invitations of God because we have the luxury to pursue goals, to put relationships first because we have no time to say yes to these invitations. Well, the the people in his class, they colluded against him, they publicly shame him, and now he has a decision to make. What is he going to do? And what's so interesting is the anger and the action of the host. We're told he's enraged. It might might have said angry um, um, in the translation, but the verb is very strong. He's enraged, and rightfully so. He's just been kicked out of the group. But what he does is fascinating. He tells his servant, go out into the streets and the alleyways and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Lord, what you ordered has been done, and there is still room. And then the master said to the servant, Go out into the roads and the hedges. When he says roads and hedges, he's saying go outside of the city. Don't invite city folk. Go into the country. Basically, he's saying don't invite people on the coast like San Francisco and New York. Go to Nebraska. Invite people. Like Nebraska, come on. Let's stay on the coast, Lord. Let's stay on the coast. No, go there. I got nothing against Nebraska either, by the way, all right? And compel them to come in so that my house may be As Joel Green writes, what is remarkable is that anger leads not to reprisal of his behavior, but to behavior that dramatically departs from the social system of reciprocity and status preservation that has thus far been characteristic of the socially elite in the larger narrative. What's he saying? This master of the house, this lord throwing the party, He's burning the whole system down. He's burning it down. He says to his servant, go and bring them in. Go and compel them. He doesn't say go and invite them, the the poor and the lame and the mutilated. He says bring them in, compel them. Why? Because they they wouldn't accept an invitation, remember? The social conventions of his day, they would not accept that. They would think, what's going on? A person like this does not invite us to a party. We're either being made uh, fun of or something's happening, we're being ridiculed, this isn't real. So he says, you gotta force them to come in. You gotta compel them to come in. The master is ruining his name, he's dragging it in the mud. By associating with those deeply beneath his social status, he's rejecting the illusions of status, of popularity. And claiming something far more elementary, but far more real. And granted, it sounds so obvious, but it's so difficult. Being a human, having a meal, love, the possibility of true friendship. These are gonna be the new hallmarks of the feast. And they seem so easy, but I challenge you. To think through parties that you've thrown and the guest list and the reasons for the guests. When's the last time you invited someone simply because they're human? Or you didn't invite them because they work in a certain industry or you want them to meet someone. When's the last time you invited someone simply because we enjoy this person? This master is creating a new social order that emerges through meals, and manifest itself in meals. That's another way of saying, Jesus is saying, in these new types of dinner parties, we both see the kingdom and we bring the kingdom. And these types of meals, you can see the kingdom, you can see what God cares about, but also when we do them, when we enact them, when we embody them, we bring the kingdom. And then Jesus ends his story with, the, with the, like the exclamation point, the direct confrontation. He says in verse 24, For I tell you, none of those invited will taste my dinner. You might notice what he's done. He's shifted uh, perspective, uh, or the, the, the person. It's not third person anymore. For I tell you, he's talking to the group now, seated before him. He was talking about a hypothetical master and hypothetical servants and hypothetical dinner parties. Now he goes second person. I tell you. None of those invited will taste my dinner. It's my dinner. Dessert is going to be awkward, for sure. Thanks a lot, Frank. (laughs) What is Jesus doing? What does this mean, this destroying of one social convention and this building up of another? Now, the one way this is interpreted is that this is Jesus saying that the Jews are being rejected from God's people, right? He's rejecting the Jews who were invited, but he's going out to the Gentiles to bring them in. But that, that doesn't make sense of the fact that the lame and the mutilated and the poor who are being brought in are Jews. So that's not it. I mean, it's, it's an interesting interpretation, but that's not what he's getting at. What he's getting at is he's raising the stakes by fundamentally rejecting the whole disgusting system of invisible status, That's not real. He's saying, I'm building a new society, a new kingdom, and it's premised around a meal, a real meal with real humans who are there for being humans, because I delight in them. And this invisible currency called status has no part in it. Remember, there are two conditions of the dinner party. First, that it's based on your popularity, and second, on the ethics of reciprocity, being able to pay one another back. And in this new dinner party, nothing can happen. Neither of those can happen. And so as you dwell on it more, you realize, and I'm being intentionally provocative here, that when I think through what status is, status is Satan's currency. And I'm not thinking, you know, you know horns and pitchfork, though I'm not, not thinking that either, but I'm thinking about this active force of evil that tries to keep us separated from one another and from God. Status is that currency. It's this disgusting, sticky web of maneuvering and political posturing and seeking to be promoted into inner circles and certainly not to be demoted. And it's all built out of our fundamental loneliness. Fundamentally, deep down, we're all the same. Every single human. We're all alone and afraid of being alone. And we would say, as followers of Jesus, that's because we're all separated from God. That is the essence of sin. We aren't filled by our creator's words and our creator's love, therefore we seek to fill it in another way. And status is one of the primary ways we do that. I love the way theologian David Ford puts it. He goes, status is our original sin-inspired cry for wholeness. We want to be whole. We don't want to feel so alone. But if we don't trust God's words for us, if we don't believe in a God, then we have to be filled somewhere else. And many of us, we choose to be filled through the estimation of our peers, through our status in society, whether it's through power or wealth or job or whatever it may be, fill in the blank. Status is the answer, one of the answers, to our fear of wondering, what if we're a mistake? What if we actually have no value without letting God weigh in on that question? Status is power. It's currency. It's the way of validating our existence. And and some cultural um, icons are already following that to the logical end. We already do this, right? We have um, Yelp, which ranks businesses. But maybe you saw that uh, episode of Black Mirror, where basically it was all premised on ranking each other. You give each other likes or dislikes. That's status. That that is precisely what Jesus is talking about. So our worth is premised not on anything more fundamental of love of a creator. Our worth is premised on this social estimation. Uh, One French economist, he puts it this way. He goes, with immense increases in technology, how do we still have poverty? In his theory, he says, I don't think we can eradicate poverty because of our consciousness of death. We have to prove that we are better than our neighbor. We have to show that we have more than others. More power, more wealth, more goodness. Once the situation in France was more or less resolved through just hours and just pay, Then people from other countries were brought in to do the jobs others didn't want to do. There is always a need for a poorer person just to show that I am better off. And I don't think, and when he's saying in the argument, he's not saying malevolently. He's not saying we need a poorer person um, to, to ridicule them. It's based on our fear. It's based on our need for validation. Are we a mistake? And when we can see the status, when we can see the hierarchy we recognize where we fit in this game. We recognize on whether we're deserving to be saved or not. And we think, and this is, this is the part that gets us, especially as followers. If you're here today and you follow this God and you're, you're wanting to allow this God to speak into us, and you recognize this God is breaking down that whole system and building a completely different one, here's the part that still tempts us. Because in this space, it's all well and good to say that the meals are premised around his love of us all equally. We are all equal, uh, of equal worth, equal dignity, and we are all equal brothers and sisters. That's great. But when we step outside, we're in a world that doesn't believe that. And our temptation is to think that we can play the game for good. That we can still exist in that game, but we can exist in it for good. One of my favorite lines Um, from anywhere J.R. Tolkien, I may have said this before who wrote The Lord of the Rings and in a letter to his son and if you know the story of The Lord of the Rings it basically centers on this idea of the ring of power in the world and all of the characters are tempted to think that if they just possess the ring of power if they possess the power they'll use it for good they're not going to use it for evil they're going to use it for good to save the world but you can't that's the point And J.R. Tolkien, writing in a letter to his son, he goes, one cannot use the enemy's ring without turning into the enemy. You can't use the ring without turning into the enemy because the ring of power only has one master. Status is only Satan's currency, never God's. So the temptation is to think that if I can just harness this, if I just play the game long enough, If I maneuver and posture and backstab and if I just get in the right circles and not get in the right circles based on God promoting me to those, but like, you know what I'm talking about, like cut corners, play the game to get in the right circles, then I'll destroy it and then I'll use it for good, but you won't, it's too late at that point because you cannot use the enemy's ring without turning into the enemy. Can't be done. So we say, if I just get this promotion, if I just get in this group, if, if I, I have to play the game for a certain amount of time and I have to play it on their rules, not God's rules. Once I get there, then fill in the blank. But C.S. Lewis writes, until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. You'll never get there. The grass is always greener, right? There's so many adages and cliches we can throw into this. It's all getting the same idea. If we try to play according to Satan's currency, We're always gonna end up more alone and more isolated and more afraid and we're just gonna perpetuate this hierarchy. But instead, (laughs) Jesus offers a new type of dinner, a new type of world and it's premised on something different and again, it seems so obvious but it's not. (laughs) It's premised on the idea of the love of people for being people. (laughs) On the love of you for being alive. That's God's dinner party. There is a meal. God is throwing it. And we should share a meal together. Why? Because you're alive and I'm alive and we're both loved by our creator. That is condition enough to share a meal. God is is delighted in us. We are social creatures designed to eat meals. We should eat meals together. And it's hard. Try it. It's very hard because we still gather toward those in our status circles, toward those in our cultures and those in our economic conditions, those who in our race or our political views or our age. We still gather around that because we feel safer in that space. Meals that break out of this Pervasive, original sin-inspired cry for wholeness are hard. And the conversations, to even broach a conversation, will be awkward and it will take time. I remember, this is a lesson that I'm still learning, will always be learning, but uh, I was first exposed to it in Portland. So I interned at a church in Portland and similar to what we do here at Hope Brooklyn, we had a meal together. It was a Sunday night church. So we'd eat a meal, and then we'd go uh, into service together. Where the church was, there were a lot of homeless. And so um, many times, the homeless would come in, and they would eat a meal with us, which was awesome. But I realized that I still, um, in my attempt to do good, or whatever that means, I still was viewing these homeless people through this hierarchical lens, right, as if I'm the one to do good. But having a conversation was really, really difficult, (laughs) I realized I had nothing in common. Many times, these people didn't want to have a conversation with me. They just wanted a meal, which is fine. But at first, it wasn't fine. At first, I was like, no, I should be bringing something to the table. When the reality is, in this new kingdom, the fact that two people are sharing a meal together is already it. We're getting somewhere. We're already seeing the kingdom and bringing the kingdom. And in time, if we do that long enough, If we do that long enough, one, what happens is the homelessness inside of me starts to come to the surface. I realize that I lack a home, and I'm desperate for a home. I realize that there is no difference between them and me. We are the same person, the same fundamentally deep fear that we are valueless, and that everything we're doing is trying to convince you of my value to save me in this world, instead of listening to the voice of God, who already says, you are of value. You are not alone. It is so good that you're alive. And that's the gift of the lame, the blind, the broken, those who are excluded from society, because they've already been kicked out of the game in a lot of ways, so they reveal to us. They reveal that we can't hide our fundamental fear. They bring it to the surface. At these dinner parties, we both see the kingdom and we bring the kingdom. I want to invite the worship team back up here. I want to close with a passage in a book called Living Gently in a Violent World. You've heard me talk about this guy before, Jean Vanier. Jean Vanier is a Catholic priest in France who, his calling, he started communities called La Arche. Um, And La Arche are communities of the abled and the disabled who live together. And there's like a hundred or something across the world. They're pretty remarkable. And that's it. That's as simple as it is. It's the able-bodied and the disabled who live together as a family because of premised on on the gospel. And there are three elements, three elements of these communities. One, meals are central. Two, they pray together. And three, they celebrate together. That's what they spend their time doing. And in that space, walls come down. The walls of the disabled, who have been led to believe that they are a burden on this world, that they're already told in so many ways that they are valueless, that they are non-existent. Those walls of separation come down and they hear, no, 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 you are of value and it's important that you're alive. You teach us about God. And the walls of the abled who only know how to play Satan's status game, who like me come intending to do good instead of realizing that we are fundamentally the same and we teach one another about who Jesus is. And so what I want to do is I want to read a couple paragraphs of Jean Vanier sort of explaining the vision of the new kingdom. This is what he writes. says, the vision that Jesus came to share is about meeting people and trusting people. Faith in Jesus is trust that we are loved. It is knowing that deeper than being part of a group, religious or otherwise, there is the fundamental experience of becoming a friend of truth, a friend of Jesus, a friend of God. But I can't do this alone. I need community. I need friends. Over the last 40 years, I have learned the transforming power of people with disabilities. I don't live all the time in a home anymore. I have a little place outside but I have the privilege of eating all my meals in a home with people with disabilities. I realize as I get older, I have difficulty meeting so-called normal people. I don't know what to talk about with them, but I can fool around at the dinner table with people with disabilities. I see that I am becoming a bit marginalized. I know that it's important to speak to the wider world, but it's not always easy to live in two worlds. In the wider world, I speak about the people in my home and the fun we have. I talk about discovering that the important thing is to be with people with disabilities, to rejoice with them, to celebrate life and have fun. A lot of people know how to drink whiskey and go to the cinemas, but they don't know how to celebrate. To celebrate is to say, we are happy together. Jesus came to change a world in which those at the top have privilege power, prestige, and money, while those at the bottom are seen as useless. Jesus came to create a body. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, he compares the human body to the body of Christ. And he says that those parts of the body that are the weakest and the least presentable are indispensable to the body. In other words, people who are the weakest and least presentable are indispensable to the church. Now, I have never seen this as the first line of a book about the church. Who really believes it? But this is the heart of faith of what it means to be the church. Do we really believe that the weakest, the least presentable, those we hide away, that they are indispensable? If that was our vision of the church, it would change many things. I have been trying to point out that our deep need, our deep need is to meet those on the other side of the wall, to discover their gifts, to appreciate them. We must not get caught up in the need for power over the poor. We need to be with the poor. That can seem a bit crazy because it doesn't look like a plan to change the world but maybe we will change the world if we are happy. Maybe what we need most is to rejoice and to celebrate with the weak and the vulnerable. Maybe the most important thing is to learn how to build communities of celebration. Maybe the world will be transformed when we learn to have fun together. I don't mean to suggest that we don't talk about serious things, but maybe what our world needs more than anything is communities where we celebrate life together and become a sign of hope for our world. Maybe we need signs that it is possible to love one another. Maybe we need meals that simply eat together because God is alive and we are loved. Would you stand with me? Jesus, we, we confess that we don't know how to do that. I mean, it sounds so obvious and so easy. But to give up the game, that scares us, and it rightfully scares us, because that shows that we aren't filled, we are not filled with your fundamental love of who we are simply for being alive. If we were, like like you, Jesus, if we were completely filled with the Father's love for us, we wouldn't have to play the game of status and all that. We could be with people and celebrate because we know that we are not separated from you, our Creator. And we know that's what you're doing in the church. That's the type of body you're creating, not one of hierarchy, but one where we all have a role and a gift that we bring to one another. And we know that type of stuff happens over meals. And we know that because we are um, separated from you, because we have that original sin-inspired cry for wholeness, that you've given us the weak and the vulnerable and the lame, and the crippled, and the blind. You've given us those who society says are already cast out to be the center of the church because they reveal to us that you don't play that game anymore. That's not what your parties and your feast are about. Your parties and your feast are about us being humans and learning to love and trust one another because you love us. I don't even know where to begin to pray for that, Lord. Other than you can take Hope Brooklyn. You can make us into that type of community. Because there is freedom there and there is life there. Give people here the courage to open their hearts, open their lives, open their friend circles to others, to those that you are inviting in. We can't do this without you, Lord. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, Visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.